This editorially independent episode of New Retina Radio is supported by Alamera, a global pharmaceutical company whose mission is to be invaluable to patients, physicians, and partners concerned with retinal health and maintaining better vision longer. Alamera. We see more together. Welcome to New Approaches to Chronic Postoperative Inflammation, a new Retina Radio miniseries. My name is John Kitchens, and I practice retina at Retina Associates of Kentucky. On this miniseries, we'll examine the management strategies for one of the most confounding and frustrating complications we encounter as retina specialists. I'm talking about postoperative inflammation. If you missed our first episode with Dr. Lisa Faya and Daniel Kernan, please go back in your podcast feed and check it out. On this episode, we're going to talk about postoperative CME uh, as it comes from our anterior segment colleagues to us, the retina specialists, and we'll talk about steroids uh, and how we utilize steroids. I'm joined by two guests for this conversation, Videya Didanya from NYU Langone Health in New York City. Hello, Videya. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. And my good friend, David Eichenbaum from Retina and Vitreous Associates in Tampa, Florida. Hey, Dave. Hey there. Happy to be here. Nice to see you in Vidahi. Well, listen, I'll tell you, Dave, I'll start with you here. You know, we we all receive patients from our anterior segment colleagues, from uh, from optometrists that have recalcitrant or, or troublesome postoperative CME. Um, Dave, first of all, any pearls for our anterior segment folks or optometrists as they're managing these patients that might cut down on the referrals to your practice? This is a common condition, relatively speaking, just because there's so many cataract surgeries a year. I think the statistic is something like 4 million cataract surgeries a year in the U.S. 2% of them will have visually significant CME, so that's 80,000 cases a year. That's a lot of cases. And my advice to our colleagues who manage cataract surgery post-ops is make sure patients use their drops. If you see a patient with CME and you tell them, use these drops, really give the drops a good try because there's excellent literature describing how most of the post-operative CME will respond to topical treatment. Make sure to hammer them with the drops before sending them to us because we'll usually start by telling them to hammer the drops or want a good history of them being compliant with the drops. And Dave, are there any drops in particular? You know, we've got prednisolone acetate, we've got diflupredne, we've got non-steroidals. Use them all. Is there a difference between steroids? What do you recommend? I really like um, drops that patients will take. And that usually means two things. Number one, reasonable out of pocket. So prednisolone acetate is usually comparable with diflupredinate these days. And number two, don't hurt to put in. And that's why I really like the more costly non-steroidals like Prolenza, for example, as opposed to Catorolac or something like that. Because the Catorolac sting, I don't think they're going to get a corneal melt in the handful of weeks they're going to be on the drops. But if they don't use the non-steroidals because they sting, they're not going to get a benefit from them. So a steroid they can afford that has some degree of potency and a non-steroidal that doesn't sting and has a coupon. Most of these drops come with coupons periodically. Make sure you have the coupon so they can afford it and they'll use it. 
Um, I'm generally not too picky other than that. I don't think there's a magical drop that works for more patients in a in a uh, quantifiable fashion. Now, Videhi, let's say patients have done exactly what Dave, or doctors have done exactly what Dave's recommended, and the patient still ends up in your chair, and they have visually significant cystoid macular edema. How do you evaluate that patient? And then what are your first steps as far as managing those folks? Yeah. So first I ask myself and I look and I ask the patient, is this their first eye post-surgery or is it their second eye? And did they have this in the other eye? If it's their second eye, but they didn't have any um, post-operative CME or inflammation in their first eye, that might take me down the route of less likely to work it up um, and start off with just treatment, which would be a longer steroid taper. Um, if this is their second eye that they've had it in, I'd actually probably get a fluorescein and based off of the imaging, consider an additional workup because sometimes these patients have the potential to, um, and are more prone and at risk for developing CME and post-operative inflammation because they may have an underlying condition that had not previously, um, either been identified or caused a problem and post-surgery it is. So those are really my first steps when they come in. And I really think about how long that steroid taper was. If it was just about a month, then I, I definitely go for a longer taper. And if they've tapered over three months and it's still there, I think about another agent. And so when you're thinking about that other agent, um, what what's your first go-to thing that you're going to consider in those patients? So um, after having done steroid, like topical steroids, if they have a lens in the bag, my first go-to agent is tends to be Ozerdex. Um, it has a short-lasting effect, but a lot of times one injection is all they need to really bring down that level of inflammation, then they may not need anything again. Um, and it gives me an idea of how they'll respond to intravitreal steroids. So that tends to be where I would go after a topical. And it's interesting that you mentioned if they have a lens in the bag. Talk about that a little bit. You know, why is that so important when you're considering using an Ozerdex? Yeah, so um, if Ozodex comes into the anterior chamber, it can be fairly disruptive and toxic to the cornea, the corneal endothelium. And often it requires you to have to go in and remove it if you can't have the patient position it back. And so in those circumstances, let's say they have an acrio, so they have um, a violation of the capsule, and so they have a communication between the anterior chamber and the posterior chamber. Those are patients I really do consider uh, unique because the implant, I've seen it sit in the AC without causing too much of a corneal disruption, or I would consider a supracroidal steroid such as Zypair because it works fairly well and you're not concerned that the implant's going to come into the AC. You know, Dave, the day he has mentioned a couple of different uh, routes with the uh, Ozerdex, the Utique, uh, which I, I really like in these patients, and then the Zypair. Are there any other options for these patients that have that compromised posterior capsule? Yeah, so a couple of things. I really like what Videhi said that the drops, you got to go kind of real slow on a taper if you get someone controlled. You can't just be like, oh, you're better. Let's taper you down a, a drop every few days or a drop a week and get you off these drops in three or four weeks. You got to go low and slow, I tell them. And the patients come in really confused and distraught because all their other 98% of friends who had cataract surgery don't have pseudophagic CME 
So they're all just trying, I tell them there's an orderly fashion for this, and we can figure out why they're more inflamed and why after cataract surgery, we have to go through these processes. So I do the drops or I make sure the drops have been done by the referring doctor. I still like to do subtenons, triumphs, and alone because it's painless for patients. It's extremely low cost. I usually give them one of those. I won't keep at that if they have a response, but it's incomplete or it's short acting because otherwise they get a ptosis and then they need all these shots. And I, I usually give them one and I usually move on from that if it comes back or it's incomplete to the osiodex, um, the intravitreal dexamethasone implant. But it's important when you start to consider the intravitreals that you really look for signs of posterior non-infectious uveitis. What are those signs? What do I look for? What do I document? As the CME comes back, and this is coming back usually a second or third or fourth time between the referring doctor tapering the drops, doing the subtenons. It's coming back, it's coming back, it's coming back. If it's coming back this much, you're going to find some cells in the anterior chamber or in the vitreous or in the OCT. And to me, that's enough if you think about what the sun criteria are for posterior non-infectious uveitis. Once you have cells, you're talking uveitis with secondary CME rather than CME without uveitis. So then you've made the diagnosis of chronic inflammation, posterior non-infectious uveitis, then you meet the indication to help the patient with intravitreal dexamethasone implant. I agree with Videhi, the lens has to be at least in the sulcus or the bag for me. It can't be a fake, it can't be a CIOL, can't be a massively rented bag with a lens that's like canted out of the way. Um, and then you can start using your intravitreal agents. And I I like the same order. I don't pound them again and again and again with osiodexes. I like to do two or three, and then I'll move on to uh, the the uteak if it, if the inflammation and the secondary CME keeps coming back. But I call it UME then. I've stopped calling it CME at some point on the on the diagnostic continuum here, and I call it uveitic macular edema. You know, and that's such a great point, Dave, that, that basically these patients really have to have a cause for that CME. CME is a finding, but the underlying cause really is inflammation and, and uveitis. And that helps give us that opening to be able to administer these other agents. Videhi, you mentioned uh, that the, the uteak or the fluocinolone acetonide implant can be tolerated in the anterior segment. I too have, have seen it in the anterior segment. It's been tolerated in the anterior segment. How does that differ from a dexamethasone implant uh, as far as urgency to get it out and effectiveness and whatnot? Uh, so I've actually, um, I would say for a, de a dexamethasone implant, I try to take them if I can't I, what I will first try is dilating them, have them lay backwards. And I've had one patient that that's very successful with. This doesn't happen very often. Um, in the patients that that's not successful with, I try to take them to the OR within 24 hours to remove that implant from the anterior chamber. And that patient is, of course, not going to have another Osrodex with me. I'm going to choose another agent for them. Um, for the uteak, I actually just leave it. I have a patient with a slight adhesion to the iris right now. And I she's seeing 20-20, she's doing beautifully. If I go in and remove that implant or move it to the posterior chamber, I'm likely to disrupt that. And her cornea looks great. Um, it's not causing any concern. So I've left that in place for months. Yeah, and I agree with you. Listen, I've had a patient that's had a, a dexamethasone, osrodex implant in the anterior chamber, and it really can wreak havoc on the cornea. 
Listen, we're getting some great pearls from Videhi and David here. We're going to take a break. And after we come back from the break, we're going to talk more specifically about different steroid therapeutics for our patients with macular edema and get insights from David and Videhi about each one. So come back and join us after this break. This editorially independent episode of New Retina Radio is supported by Alamera, a global pharmaceutical company whose mission is to be invaluable to patients, physicians, and partners concerned with retinal health and maintaining better vision longer. Alamera, we see more together. Welcome back to New Approaches to Chronic Postoperative Inflammation, a new Retina Radio miniseries. I want to examine a, a different route here. We're going to do a little bit of rapid fire, Videhi and David, uh, about the the steroids that we use inside the eye, the routes we use them, the different steroids and whatnot. I'm going to give each of you a steroid and a route of administration, and you kind of give me the pros and cons and when you might use it. Videhi, I'm going to be tough on you here to start out. Intravitreal triamcinolone, and specifically intravitreal triacinolone. How do you like it? When do you use it? How do you use it? Uh, I will say I have not used it in about six years um, with some of the other agents out there, but it works very well. Um, part of the reason I haven't used it is um, the ease of access to other medications such as Ozerdex um, and the similar effect and the more um, expected and timeliness of the medication. I have had a few patients come back post-injection um, from elsewhere and they have triessence in their AC and they're disrupted by this snow everywhere, which you don't tend to see with the other medications. Um, that said, uh, previously it's been quite accessible. Um, it's cost effective and it's quite easy to administer. Um, but uh, with with lately also with more um, backordered issues, I really do prefer some of the other um, intravitreal corticosteroids. Yeah, sadly, I'm afraid that we haven't had access to it for a couple of years, and it's kind of bounced around between different companies and manufacturers, and uh, and I'm not sure when or if it's ever going to come off back order. I've heard some rumors about availability and whatnot. David, jumping to you now, um, intravitreal dexamethasone implants, or the Osyrdex implants, when do you use it? How do you use it? What do you expect from it? Intravitreal Osyrdex, I would argue the go-to intravitreal steroid in 2023 as a first shot at putting something inside the eye. It's got a lot of indications, which is cool. Um, everyone's got a lot of experience with it now, which is cool. It's readily available. It's broadly covered on commercial and Medicare Advantage plans. Um, I use it when I'm going inside the eye. I trained in uh, Boston at Tufts, where intravitreal triamcinolone was birthed by uh, Martitis way back in, I think, 2003 or four or something like that. So I, I swam in intravitreal triamcinolone for a long time and triessence, but I've fully migrated away from it uh, even before there were issues with um with uh, getting it, with ordering it. Just like the day he said, you have less predictable pressure problems. Um, with Osyrdex, you don't have the snow with Osyrdex, you don't have the paradoxical inflammation that earned Kenalog 40 a black box with uh, Osyrdex. You have all these advantages to it. So I use it a lot as my go-to intravitreal steroid. Um, 
And uh, I find that it's easy to use it on label, easy to get, and it always goes away completely. The downside with it is patients see it. They see this thing floating around, especially if they're vitrectomized. But I tell them an Osiodex is like a baby. Neither one stays in there forever. And the Osiodex will dissolve to be something that's completely gone. And patients love that analogy. But if they don't tolerate that bouncy Osiodex, think a little bit about the other steroids. That being said, the Uteks, and the Iluvians, they don't really bounce around like the Osirdex. They're they they kind of get stuck in the vitreous base, even in a vitrectomized patient. So I have gone from a intolerant Osirdex patient to a tolerant Utique or Iluvian patient a number of times, and I've almost never been burned on that, which is a really interesting and important insight if you're going to be playing with the non-erodible long-term intravitreal corticosteroids. Well, you lead us perfectly into that. Uh, Videhi, David mentioned the Utique or the extended release uh, fluocinolone implant for uveitis. Uh, when do you use this? What do you expect from it? Uh, how do you use it? I use it after, for the for post-operative CME or uveitis, I will probably give the patient a shot at two Ozodexes. And if they respond well, but they have a recurrence, that's when I then move to the Utique. Um, Generally, these patients are older, and so they're not going to require a number of these injections, but even when um, they have the implant there, just like David mentioned, they don't always notice it. So the fact that the implant part portions of it are not uh, degradable, it's fine. It's not too concerning to me. Um, if they're younger, and I'm thinking, I do think twice about it if they're much younger, because a lot of times these patients need long-term control. And so if they had surgery at a younger age and they do have this inflammation, but they have other reasons to have this inflammation, such as a systemic condition, those are the patients that I would actually potentially do a utique on, but also start some immunomodulatory therapy on so that I can avoid having to do these injections every year for them and um, buy them some time. David, you know, Utique and Illuvian are, are very, very similar. In fact, some would say the same same basic thing as far as that goes. What have we learned from years and years of access to Illuvian that we can, I guess, learn from or utilize when we're planning to use Utique in our patients? So I think the most important learning that I translate from lots and lots of Illuvian experience to now a, a accumulating Utique experience is when to, to inject the drug. Because this is a trickle. I remember the old Iluvian commercial kind of program where it looked like a drippy shower, like the shower in my dorm room that would never stop dripping. That was so annoying, but so apropos to describe the zero order kinetics and the way that the Iluvian and the Utique work. So it's never a bolus. So what I learned from Iluvian, I've translated very successfully to Utique is start the drip when you don't need a lot of drug. You get the eye quiet, you get the eye control. When I made the decision to do a utique in a patient who has posterior non-infectious uveitis, often after surgery with cystoid uveitic macular edema, I'll put it in Osiodex, and within two to four weeks, I'll put in the UT, because the Osiodex has this big bolus. If you look at the and study the pharmacokinetic of the Osiodex, a lot of dexamethasone comes out at first as it begins to get eroded and looks like Swiss cheese after about a month and there's tons of exposure. Your eye is quiet. Everything is happy. The cytokines are 
being suppressed then you pop in the utique or the iluvian if it's diabetic who's inflammatory but in this case we're talking about the patient who's purely inflammatory so you pop in the utique and then you begin to ride the wave of corticosteroid suppression for hopefully a very long time hopefully at least 18 to 24 months up to 36 months which is a good long time for these frustrated patients Dave, that's such a salient point. I think that's critical is, is that it isn't that big bolus that gets the, you know, very uh, edematous macula dried out. It's what keeps it there once it's already dried out. So I think that's a, that's a great point. But Dehi, I don't know how much experience you have with this supracroidal triamcinolone known as Zypir, but what are your thoughts on that? It has not been my first, my go-to first line agent, um, but I have found it quite efficacious in patients who um, are aphakic or have an acrios um, or um, a lens that's been scleral fixated. And it works very well. I found in the patients that I've used it on that it has a similar time frame of effect to an Ozodex, which is about three months. Sometimes it'll get you out to six months. Um, it's, it's fairly easy to administer um, once you've done it a few times. And so I've actually had great luck with it. And I think it works quite well. And Dave, what's your thoughts on Zypir? So I think the coolest thing about Zypir, and it is cool, is that we're getting into the suprachoroidal space. And it is the perfect drug to kind of gain experience individually and as a field with the suprachoroidal space. We know a boatload about Kenalog. If you wind up going intravitreal, it's intravitreal Kenalog. We've done that for a generation now. Um, we are learning how to use the injector, who's tolerant of it, uh, what the techniques are, what the drug kind of looks like when it is in the suprachoroidal space, when you expand that potential space. It is the intro to what I think will be a variety of therapeutics in the suprachoroidal space, possibly also administered with the clear side injector, possibly administered with other injectors or other various surgical devices. But I think the coolest thing about it is we are really looking at it as a, the opening chapter in utilizing the potential space of the suprachoroidal compartment. You know, it amazes me that there can be such access and IP around a short needle. You know, basically that's what it is. It's a, just a one millimeter needle that allows us access, and I'm simplifying it obviously, but allows us the ability to inject novelly into that supercortical space. And I agree, it is a, a great starting point for a variety of different therapeutics. Listen, you guys have been absolutely great. You've been entertaining, you've been educational. Videhi, David, I want to thank you for joining me on this new Retina Radio mini series, New Approaches to Chronic Postoperative Inflammation. We have one more episode coming out, so stay subscribed to New Retina Radio so that these episodes automatically appear in your podcast feed. Remember to go back and listen to our previous episode and catch uh, that with Lisa Faya and Dan Kiernan. For now, my name is John Kitchens. Thanks for joining us.